Amen. Thank you, Todd. Good morning again, everyone. Kids, you're dismissed for Gospel Project. They are working their way through the Scriptures together, and they get to draw, and you don't. I guess you could if you want to. Um, thank you, Todd, for that wonderful prayer. Uh, Todd serves on our transition team and has been so helpful to us as a church in many ways behind the scenes. Uh, if you would, pull out a Bible, please, with me. We'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 today. 2 Corinthians 2. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the chair in front of you, and you're welcome to take that Bible home with you. We would encourage you to do so and to read it. Uh, today marks the conclusion of our basics series. Uh, if you're new with us today for the last six weeks or so, we've been working our way through some reminders of what the church is and what the church is supposed to be accomplishing together. So I hope this has been an encouragement to you. Starting next week, we will begin looking at the book of Habakkuk or Habakkuk. Um, it is one of the short uh, Old Testament prophetic books. So if you've never read it, you could read it in one sitting, 15, 20 minutes between now and next Sunday. That would serve you well. Perhaps if you could meet up with another person here over the week sometime and look at that book together, read through it. We'll spend, um, I don't remember exactly how long, eight weeks. Thank you, Tad. This is why Tad takes care of the details, because I hadn't even asked the question, and he knew what I was wondering. That is sick. So we'll spend eight weeks together walking through um, this, uh, this really great book that ends in a particularly demonstrative high note. That will be an encouragement to all of us, I hope. So we'll start that next week. But today, we're going to finish out uh, our series on the church looking at 2 Corinthians 2. And let me try to frame the morning together by asking uh, this question by way of introduction. What future can we expect as individual Christians and as a church family? Now, by future, I don't mean what happens when you die. Not that that's unimportant. Heaven and hell are, are real places. And they last uh, forever. But when I use the word future, I'm not speaking of that future in particular. More immediate future is what I'm referring to. So this afternoon, or tomorrow, in a week, or a month, in two years, if we as a church begin or continue to live faithfully in the things we've talked about over the last month together, then what can we anticipate will happen? What kind of receptivity will we find? If we live the kind of shared life together we've been discussing, then what can we anticipate God will do? That's the question that we want to consider today. Maybe if we put it in light of the whole series, we could say it this way. If glorifying God through lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ is our consuming passion as individuals and as a church, then what will the future hold? Well, the scriptures tell us. We don't have to wonder. It actually spells out in detail the kind of future we can anticipate as individuals and as a church. So let's read it together. Uh, I will read from 2 Corinthians 2, verses 12 
through 17. When I, this is Paul talking, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we're not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. This passage lays out for us three expectations that we can have as individuals and as a church. We could summarize those in three words from the passage itself. First is procession, second is fragrance, and third is sufficiency. So those will mark what we talk about together for the next 40 minutes or so. Procession, fragrance, and sufficiency. This is not going to be an easy message, as you can tell from the verses themselves. But I have been praying that the Lord would help us to receive it in a way that's useful to us as a church family and helpful to us as individuals. Before we tackle those three words, it's first necessary to lay a little bit of groundwork. We have just read in the middle of a long extended discussion that we don't have time to read the whole thing together, but let me see if I can summarize briefly for you what's going on. God wrote 2 Corinthians through someone called the Apostle Paul in the first century. Corinth was the recipients, so specifically the Corinthians who were believers, the church at Corinth. Corinth was an ancient town in Greece. Uh, You can still go there today. It sits high up on a hill that overlooks down on the sea. It's a beautiful place. There are ruins of eventually the church that would have been built on top of where this church would have gathered. It's kind of a crazy thought, isn't it? Paul had traveled to Corinth, preached the gospel, and started a church. And then he stayed there a while to help that church begin to sink roots down into Christ. And then he left to plant another church in another town. That was his pattern. If um, that's something you don't know much about, there's a book in the Bible called Acts. It was Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. And Acts is the story of sermons being preached and churches starting. And so you can read about that there. I would encourage you to do so. So Paul has left Corinth, and sometime after that, people have either come up from the Corinthians themselves or come in from outside the town. And they had begun teaching, in essence, a different gospel. And in particular, these false teachers seem to be saying that Paul because he was suffering hardships as a leader, then the presence of those hardships meant that he wasn't really walking in the gospel, that he wasn't actually teaching the biblical gospel. 
and that his life was evidence of that fact. Does that make sense to you? So in other words, they were saying Paul's life isn't congruent with the message of hope he's sharing. And so either you haven't got the message right or you haven't got the messenger right. And so news of this eventually traveled back to Paul. And Paul was a rather um, bold person. I imagine he wouldn't be the easiest guy to get along with. So Paul receives this news that the church is hearing this message and to some extent they're believing it. And so he writes another letter back to them. Now this letter didn't survive. It was between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. This letter he apparently tells them, you have fallen off the wagon and you need to get back on it. And it was apparently a stern letter. So Paul sends this letter, but then this is, this is a pastor at heart. He loves people. And so he begins to wonder, how did they receive it? Did, did it help them or did it hurt them? Did they repent or did this further push them down into their sin? And so as he's on this journey of planting more churches, encouraging them, he is troubled by the reality of a church he started that's wandering away, and he's wondering how his letter was received. So much so that Paul says, I'm in this town called Troas, and there's a wide door of gospel ministry open, but I'm so preoccupied with how the church in Corinth is doing that I'm not fully present. Have you ever found that to be the case? You're doing something, and maybe even God's blessing it, and yet you're preoccupied with something happening somewhere else. We just finished a class on parenting. That is what parenting is. You're off doing something else, and you're wondering how the kid's handling what we talked about this morning. It's not a joke. That's, those of you with kids know, in many ways, that's how parenting works. So Paul is feeling the burden of a parent for this church. So much so he can't be fully present in this current city he's in. So he wanders away to the next city in hopes that Titus would be there and Titus could tell him, here's how the church is doing. So that's what's happening behind the scenes in the argument that we've just jumped into. Later in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we hear in particular what Titus tells him. But here in chapter 2, we have more germane issue for us to talk about today. 2 Corinthians 2, 4-17 is first about Paul and his ministry and that God had sent him to plant churches and speak the gospel. But by implication, these verses are for every Christian and for every church. And it's to that end we will consider them together today. Our experience of living for the glory of God and the spread of the gospel in many ways will be similar to Paul's. Now, why? Why would that be the case? Not because you're a, a Jew that has been won over to Christ. There's probably not any here today. Not because you live in the first century. Not because your experiences have been exactly the same as Paul's but because there's a pattern set forth in the way the gospel works and in what it does in people. That's exactly the same for us today. So if we could put a warning label on this message, it would be that this is hard. This is not an easy path.
passage of Scripture. But what can we anticipate to be our future as we live on the mission of making disciples together? Well, that's where we come back to those three words, procession, fragrance, and sufficiency. If you're here today as somebody who wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, we would say, uh, first of all, welcome, that we're, we're thrilled you're here. And our hope today would be that the Scriptures would help you to understand that the gospel is something worth any measure of difficulty that it might bring. And so what you'll hear today isn't the portions of the Scripture that lean in and say, there is life and joy and peace and internal ease that comes from the gospel. All that's true. But sometimes there's also difficulties, suffering, persecution, external hardships that come from being a Christian. And those of us in the room who are following Christ would say by our lives, hopefully, that we believe Jesus is worth any level of difficulty and hardship. Because we believe what we gain in Christ is better than any external crises we might face. And so if you're somebody who's still on the fence, do I believe the gospel message about Christ or not, then we want to say uh, with full transparency that the scriptures say both. Life is much easier with Christ. And in some ways, life is more difficult with Christ. So we'll be leaning into that portion of the biblical witness today. First, let's talk about that word procession. Speaking of the Christian life in general and the mission of disciple-making in particular, Paul uses a rather surprising image that frankly is easy to jump over in this passage. It's that of a triumphal procession. What in the world does that mean? Triumphal procession. Look at verse 14, the first half. Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. This doesn't mean what it first might seem to mean. The only time we really use the word procession today is when we think about a wedding, that there's a wedding processional. And hopefully, as you look back at your wedding, if you're married, that's a happy memory for you, <laughs> that, that things have turned out well, that what you hoped for in that procession has borne itself out in the way in which life has worked. Another place, though, that we see processions today is uh, images like the championship parade of the Chicago Cubs late last year. Any Cubs fans in the room? A few of you. All right? The championship parade, maybe you saw it in the news. What happened? By some estimates, the number of people that came to the parade in November was higher than the total population of the city of Chicago proper. Now, that's rather um, ridiculous, probably. But if you're a Chicago Cubs fan, that's the way you would tell the story. But here's what happens. The team wins, the team comes home, the team loads up on floats, people from all over the place come, and they simply offer a processional through town. And everybody cheers, they end up at the park, and there's a big party. That's how this works. 
Paul is not talking about Jesus winning the baseball championship, the World Series, and then walking around with him as our partner in baseball victory. That's not the image. But he is talking about a parade. There is a particular kind of parade that Paul has in mind. Paul uses a very technical term here to refer to something in particular that the original hearers would have been familiar with that we are not at all. So would you give me just a few minutes to try and track you through that history because it helps us understand our own current experience. Rome was the superpower of the day. And after a Roman general would have been away in battle and experienced a particular victory, so not just your everyday average victory over an enemy, but one of significance, one of particular importance, then that general would come back to Rome and they would have a general's processional. And so all the town would come out and there would be a parade. To this day, if you visit Rome, you can see stone carvings of these processionals. Here's how the parade would go. Here's the order. First would come the Senate and the magistrates. Now, were they at the battle? No, but those in power have a way of walking forward in that power, don't they? Some things never change. So first would come the Senate and all the magistrates. Next would come people carrying the spoils of war. So the things in particular they would take from those they conquered would get paraded through town so that everybody could see, here's what you won. Next would come, I couldn't figure out why, but flute players. I guess these were just great instruments. When you think of manly victory, don't you think of flutes? (laughs) Rather odd. After the flute players would come oxen, and then, in particular of importance for us, would come a representative sample of the people who were conquered in battle. And so, often in chains would come some people who had been conquered by the general. Behind them would be the general who had won his victory. He would be riding in chariot, waving. I'm sure it was like this. And where would they end up? Well, in ancient Rome, you believed that a victory in a battle was ultimately an expression of the gods being kind to you. So you'd end up at a temple, and these oxen that you had carried through in the parade would be killed as sacrifice. Their smell would rise in praise to the gods, and then some of the captives would be killed to demonstrate final decisive victory over them. So let's go back to Chicago. Can you imagine if that parade played itself out that way? The Indians are led forward, but this is not a racial slur. I heard an awkward comment there. The Cleveland Indians, okay, are are led forward by the Cubs. They get to the end, and then some of them are killed. It's just ridiculous to us, isn't it? But that's how this worked. The barbarity of it is appalling. 
This is no Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Now, the question, of course, for us is, who are the Christians in the victory procession? When, when Paul evoked this image for the Corinthians, what did he want them to think of? Who was he saying, you, Corinthians, are this? Here's who you are in the story. Friends, I think because the majority of us in the room are Americans, and we're used to American shock and awe and triumphalism, that it's easy for us to read onto the Scripture. We're the generals. So we're, we're in the chariot with Jesus, and we have conquered every foe. But that's not the picture at all. Paul's reason to evoke this image is to say that we are the conquered ones. We are the captives. We are the ones who lost in battle. We're the ones in chains. Paul's saying we are God's prisoners. Now that's rather shocking, isn't it? I'm like, hold on, Chuck. I'm not sure I see that in my Bible. If that's surprising to you, then just think of it a, a bit in the broader context of the Bible. One of the ways Christians are often referred to is that we are slaves of Christ, that we are His bond servants, that He bought us with a price, that we belong to Him. That message is no softer. It's just one we're more accustomed to. So, brothers and sisters, let me read this sentence just to make sure I get it right. Do you have a category for this claim? I am a joy-filled captive of Christ, and every day God is leading me to die to myself and to live for Him. Is there a way in which you understand your Christianity and our work together as a church that includes the call to die daily? I hope so, because that's what Paul's instructing us here we are to anticipate. So what do we make of this shocking imagery? Well, one sense in which we can understand it that is particularly helpful to us is that we can remember before we were Christians that God says we were His enemies, that God says we were hostile to Him. Paul himself used this language in Romans 5. He says, for while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more, now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Brothers and sisters, never forget that before Jesus, you and I were bound in sin and not indifferent towards God. Rather, we were against Him. By very nature, not to say anything about action, but even more so in action, we were people who stiff-armed God and said, I want nothing to do with you. I'm in charge. I'll do life my own way. But the love of God 
triumphed over us. We lost the battle for control to God. He lovingly conquered us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The grace of God given to us through the gospel wrecked our arrogant defiance. Aren't you glad you came today? The mercy of God in the death, burial, and resurrection brought us to our knees where we found forgiveness. And that has transferred us from being bound in sin to being bound to Christ. Now, the difference couldn't be more stark. Sin makes a really lousy master. It always overpromises and underdelivers. God always promises and delivers. See, God is a great master. He is not a tyrant. He doesn't ever instruct us to do something that isn't ultimately for our good. God always has our best interest in mind. And so, you will be a slave of someone, either a slave of sin or a slave of Christ. You choose. That's part of the gospel message. God has saved us and now we belong to Him. And so the way in which Paul is speaking here is saying that Jesus has led us as captives into the triumphal parade of Christ around the world. And so as we live our lives openly together as Christians and as we as a church proclaim that Jesus is victorious, then we are joy-filled captives proclaiming that Jesus' victory is better, that we're to live for Him. This is enormously helpful, is it not? Sometimes life lived as Christians is not easy. Sometimes there are questions we don't know the answers to. Sometimes it feels as though life was easier before Christ. Sometimes we would choose to go back and live as though we were under our own control. Sometimes we think we know better than God. Sometimes I look on people who seem to know God better than I do, and I think they seem to have life much more, they seem to hold life with much greater difficulty than I do. Am I the only one in the room that has had these kind of thoughts? Friends, that works that way sometimes because I'm looking at life through the lens of my, on, my ongoing struggle with sin. So I don't see reality for what it really is. But other times, it is true. Other times, people are facing hardship not in spite of the fact that they follow Christ, but precisely because they do. And Paul says this is a good, wonderful, anticipatory thing. Because by nature of Christians dying to themselves, facing hardship they would not face on their own, persevering in things 
that they might not have had to deal with if they weren't claiming the name of Christ, then Jesus is seen as victorious. You see, his love and grace bind us to him. And it's not the whole picture of what it means to be a Christian, but part of what it means to be a Christian is that we march towards our death joyfully every single day. I warned you, this is not an easy passage. But friends, when we think about our future together, we ought not expect that we would always find ourselves in the halls of cultural power. We ought not expect that everyone will think well of us. We ought not expect that the message of the gospel will always mean an absence of suffering and hardship. We ought not expect if we obey, then things will be easier than if we chose to disobey. We ought not expect to be the popular kids at school or to advance at work. We ought not expect to have loads of money in an absence of trial. We ought not expect if we humbly stand for Christ, then we'll always have a hearing in the public square. These are not things that God has promised us. Quite the opposite. Paul's life, if you know much about it, was full of pain and suffering. In terms of his external ease of life and even his physical health, his life was easier before Christ. He went from being a person of cultural power to being one who multiple times was left for dead after he was pummeled with rocks over and over and over. Despite the lies of the false teachers around him, Paul is saying to these Corinthian Christians, your difficulties are not present because the gospel isn't true or because you followed the wrong messenger, but because this is the way the gospel works. Because who's the hero of the gospel? I'm glad you got that part. How did it work for Jesus? Friends, why would we think it would work any different for us? The presence of difficulty in the life of a Christian and our remaining faithfulness to him in the middle of it herald the gospel, heralds the gospel louder than any time of ease ever could. So brothers and sisters, once we're captured by the love of Christ, we will find there's nothing greater to live for. And that will mean that by God's grace we stick with it, even if life gets more difficult. This is a message that hasn't been common in American Christianity, but it is a message we desperately need. We have lived under the illusion of cultural power, and it is very quickly evaporating from us. And if Paul were here, I think he would say, 
That's the very best thing that could happen to American Christianity. We have exchanged gospel power for political power. And that's a lousy trade. A healthy church is characterized not by triumphalistic arrogance, but by sacrifice and joy. Kent Hughes put it this way, a vibrant, useful spiritual life is a death march in which the marcher repeatedly dies. It is the path pioneered and mastered by Christ. So Church on Mill, look ahead. There is hardship in our future. Not because God doesn't love us, not because He doesn't care, not because the gospel isn't real, not because Jesus isn't worth it, but precisely because He is. And how will the world see it? They'll see it as we persevere. They'll see it as we are paraded through town. Not in power, but in an absence of it. Not in freedom, but as captives. Not as we get everything we want, but as we yield our freedoms for the sake of others. This is the pattern of the gospel. As we press on believing and trusting in Jesus despite difficulties, the general is making himself known. So what's the church for? It's that together we would walk this parade because it is not easy. There will be times in which it feels as though we cannot stand up on our own. And we need brothers and sisters in Christ who would hold us up as we walk through this procession together. That's the first image in this passage. Now the second is one, if you've heard this before, you've likely already become familiar with. It's that of fragrance. Look at verse 14 with me. Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. I hope you never hear that phrase again without seeing what Paul meant. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Brothers and sisters, here's a fact. You smell. Uh, besides the thrill of the ride itself, my favorite thing about riding a motorcycle is all the smells. I know that sounds kind of odd, but humor me for a moment. When you're trapped in a car, particularly in Arizona, because the windows are always up, you are oblivious to all the smells around you. When you're on a motorcycle, it's not that way. 
driving home on my bike. I love the smells. Past a neighborhood where somebody's having a barbecue. Past a restaurant. It's like you're sitting at the table with them. It's fabulous. You miss all of that in a car. Christians, we smell. And everybody else around us is driving a motorcycle. They're not stuffed up in a car. They see, they pay attention, and you are wafting their way. And Paul says there's a particular smell that's going their direction. And you can't help but notice it. We need to start living our Christian lives smelling like the good aroma that God says we are. Now, what is that image? Well, in the victory processionals through Rome, guess what was also part of this? Big heaping piles of incense. And so as they would parade through town, the incense would go through town. It would linger long after the parade was gone. And then as you'd make it to the temple and the oxen would be offered in sacrifice, that smell, that smoke would rise up. I realize these images are so strange to us. But here's the picture. The picture of Christian is that as we are living our Christian lives, that there's a particular aroma that you give off and that it's a sweet-smelling aroma. And who's smelling it? Did you catch that? First, it's God. That as you live the Christian life, God sees, God hears, God smells. And that a life of sacrifice, a life of obedience, a life of sacrifice, a life of perseverance through hard things, rises up to God's nostrils and it brings a smile to his face. Isn't that cool? Paul is saying that his life and ministry offered a sweet-smelling praise to the one true God. And that by that same smell, Christians are known to others. So turn to your neighbor and say, geez, you stink. No? Paul's life was a daily sacrifice of praise to God. So let me see if I could bring that home for us. Brothers and sisters, as gospel people who both live out and joyfully share the good news that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, we too give off an odor that every decision to forgive somebody who harms you, That every word sung up in praise to God on Sunday morning. That every moment spent in prayer for lost friends to become Christians. That every instance in which we face temptation and instead 
choose to trust God and obey. That every faithful recounting of the gospel to an unbeliever, that all of these things please God. They smell good to Him. They're pleasing to the one who saved us. And that each and every moment we choose to follow Him, we are offering ourselves up as a sacrifice of praise to God. And that that sacrifice is pleasing and aromatic before our Savior. It is so easy to forget the way life works in the kingdom of God. It's easy to think that because I'm following Jesus, my life is supposed to be easy. It's tempting to think if God really loved me, then I would always be healthy and wealthy and powerful and full of pleasure. But that's not the way life works in the kingdom of God. Contrary to all the garbage you'll see if you turn on the Christian station on your TV. The gospel message emanates not from lives of ease, but from lives of hardship. Lives that show Jesus is better than the world has to offer. So Church on Mill, our witness for Christ will be the strongest if our lives bear the crushed fragrance of suffering and daily death. When we get out of the bed in the morning and our first thought isn't, what can I do today to get what I want? But rather, who can I serve? When at work or school we receive harshness, and we respond in kindness. When we go out of our way to live on less than we could so that we can give more away. When we hang out with people in our church family who are not like us and their smell is not always good. When we persevere in difficulty, not giving up on God, despite the fact our lives haven't turned out the way we thought they would. That's when the aroma of Christ goes out the strongest. These kinds of lives demand a response because the gospel itself demands a response. Now, what will the response be? This is the part of the passage we're familiar with. It's that some people, as we live this kind of life together, church, will be drawn to this life. They'll be drawn to Christ. They'll respond with faith and repentance. They'll join us in baptistry and become a part of us. But others will not just reject the gospel message. They'll reject us. Friends, that's what our future holds. To some... We smell good. To others, we be stanky. And that's okay.
Some will find our sacrifices for the cause of Christ to be repulsive. And our job is not to make the gospel palatable to everyone's noses, but to live in such a way that the truth and grace and love of Christ are put on display. As we work together to glorify God through lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can expect to both encourage some and exacerbate others. That's what Christianity does. Now, we don't want the way in which we live, the way in which we speak the gospel, to be what's offensive, right? This isn't a pass for being a jerk. But it is to say that not everyone will receive our lives and our message well. And while that should always be met with broken hearts, it's never to mean that we put a lamp over the light, but that we live the light well. Do you feel the weight of this passage? Who can stand up under what Paul's saying? He's saying that Jesus is parading us in triumphal procession and that what people think of Christ is directly tied to what they think of us. He's saying that the way we live will either be a sweet smell to someone who will get to know the God of love and peace, or it's repulsive. Who in the world can bear that level of responsibility? It's tremendous. That's what Paul's getting at when he says, who is sufficient for this kind of life? Who can bear the weight of knowing life or death, heaven or hell, is bound up in our daily lives? If you read the rest of the passage, what you'll find is that Paul is saying, in and of ourselves, no one is sufficient. But we don't live for or from ourselves. Christ is fully sufficient for this kind of life. Take 10 minutes later today and read the next chapter. That is his core argument. Christ is sufficient. Christ is sufficient. That means, brothers and sisters, that we can live joyful lives even in the middle of being captives, even in the middle of being rejected by some and embraced by others. What can we anticipate as a church? procession, a smell, and increasingly, the more we live the one and the other, we will find Christ is sufficient. Let's pray.
Father, only you can make these kinds of truths. Digestible. And so we pray that anything I've said that is not consistent with your message, that it would fall from our minds, but that everything that has been, that even the graphic nature of this imagery would stand forever on the front burner of how we think about our daily lives. Father, forgive us where we have made church about our own ease and comfort. Forgive us where we have gathered only around us a few people that we like because they're easy to get along with. Forgive us for where we have seen hardship coming and have turned away. We as a church family, as brothers and sisters, together through the sufficiency of Christ, dedicate ourselves afresh and anew to being paraded around Tempe for your glory. And we pray, God, that increasingly our lives would be of such a degree that many people would ask, what's different about you? Now, you give us the opportunity to articulate a gospel of love and truth and grace and forgiveness. And that day by day, you would add to us those who are being saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.